This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. There is often a perception that feminism is a Western worldview or culture, aka Budaya Bharat. But is that really true? How do we contextualize the movement for gender equality here in the Southeast Asian region? I'm Dashan Johan and this is Today I Learned. So joining me on the show today in conjunction with International Women's Day is Sharon A. Bong, Professor of Gender Studies at the School of Arts and Social Sciences at Monash University, Malaysia. She has also co-edited the book Gender and Sexuality Justice in Asia. Welcome to the show, Sharon. How are you? Thank you. I'm very well. We often hear that feminist, uh, feminism, um, the feminist movement, is a Western culture of Budaya Bharat. But just how much weight does that argument hold? Shakespeare once wrote, What's in a name? Uh, that which we call by a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. <laughs> I mean that sometimes the naming of things is less important than perhaps the meaning or the values that we attach to them. Hmm. So feminism to me is an example of such a name. And in most of Southeast Asia, words like feminism, even gender and sexuality, are not found in our local or vernacular languages. So in that sense, feminism as an ideology may seem foreign and worse Western. So why do I say it's worse? In the context of Southeast Asia, with notable exceptions uh, like Thailand, Hmm. we have the historical memory of being colonized by Western white empires. So the hesitation or hostility towards feminism in part comes about when it is perceived as a Western value. But there are also many who advocate for social justice and in particular gender justice who shy away from the label feminist. This is often seen in the young, younger generation. And this may have to do with how feminists are stereotyped as man-haters, bra burners, family breakers, etc. But for me personally, I've long identified as a feminist as have many other women and men, and we do so because we believe in advancing women's human rights and gender justice and understand that this struggle is intersectional, that one could be discriminated against on account of one's sex, sexual orientation, ethnicity, class, nationality, religious affiliation. So in walking the talk, you put into practice your own brand of feminism And then it ceases to be a Western value per se. So there is ownership in that sense and buy-in of the label. Right. But how far back do we have to look um, to understand the origins of the feminist movement or the gender equality movement in this region of Southeast Asia? I'll have to start uh, the response, you know, with a throwback to the Western context. So in the Western context, scholarship, usually attributes a loose origin to Mary Wollstonecraft. So she's a British writer. Mm. And in the 18th century, she wrote A Vindication of the Rights of Women. And feminist scholarship, you know, uh, has earmarked or identified more or less three schools of feminist thought. And generally, it's uh, somewhat uh, understood that the first wave feminism is the suffrage movement in the UK and the US, for example, which is the battle for women's right to vote, like men. And then second wave feminisms is mainly about the woman question. But with the rise of feminists of color, which includes Asian feminists, feminists from Africa and Latin America, 
So they have put on the table um, ethnicity and class. So they've added that to the equation, meaning that one could be triply oppressed on account of one's sex, you know, ethnicity and class. Right. And of course, with third wave feminisms, we have newer forms. There is a comeback of environmental feminism or ecofeminism, which is what I'm currently working on. Mm-hmm. Queer feminism, vegan feminism. And then, of course, post-feminism, as there are many who question the relevance of feminisms, you know, who feel that feminisms are passé, that we've really won gender battles, so we don't need feminisms in our lives. To answer your question, how do we recognize the so-called feminist movements in Asia? It's also important to consider what counts as a feminist movement, as well as, you know, who is doing the counting, so to speak. (laughs) And historians at least for this region, uh, keeping in mind my response to the first question where feminism itself is not um, a local term, right? So historians usually note, for instance, women marching alongside men on the battlefront or, you know, in nationalist struggles uh, against colonialism. Yeah, Uh, Historians also count as the genesis of the women's movement here, the start-up of uh, women's NGOs, Uh, because women's NGOs are dedicated to combating gender-based discrimination and violence that are directed not only to women and girls, but also LGBT-identifying persons. When we look at, let's say, the period of World War II, which took place in the late 30s and and, and early 40s, um, did we already have a a feminist movement or an established sort of um, gender equality movement at that period in the Southeast Asian region? This is a difficult question, Doctor. <laughs> and uh, I better quickly put out a disclaimer that as a non-historian, right. I think what comes to mind uh, when you talk about World War II and because you know, we were not born yet, um, right. what comes to mind is the plight of uh, comfort women in Southeast Asia during World War II. And in the context of Asia, of course, that means the Japanese occupation. Mm-hmm. And to answer your question, so this is a bit of a cheat response, to answer your question a bit more indirectly, um, a global movement after World War II, right? So post-World War II, that was formed in aid of comfort women. So women and girls who survived the horrors of sexual slavery. And uh, this movement was started by survivors who had the courage to break the silence, Mm. despite the shame, you know, and the stigma of doing so. So there's the Malaya Lolas, or Free Grandmothers of the Philippines. And this is a civil society organization that uses the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court that recognizes rape as a crime against humanity. Right. So global networks like this connect with those who are working um, in their home countries or domestically. Um, and it links you know, local to global allies. And this expands the reach of uh, global justice. So this would be one of the key roles that feminists have played post-World War II. The Philippines and South Korea are among the few countries in the Asia-Pacific that have ratified the Rome Statute. But there would be you know, women's movement um, in the country because in World War II, that's really the 1930s, late 1930s, right. 1940s. But we may not you know, recognize them if we are looking for which organizations have used the label feminist, for instance. Right. So we just need to dig deeper and to look harder because also a lot of these narratives are lost or are hidden. 
do you have any insight as to what exactly um, specifically women were fighting for in the region at the time? Um, we know, like as you mentioned um, earlier, that you know we've we've had uh, historical documents that talk about how women you know marched together with men um, you know in anti-colonial movements. Yes. We know there were also women student leaders, but were yeah. they also fighting perhaps domestic battles as well to push for upward mobility um, among women? Um, so was it like a two-pronged thing that was going on? Yeah, definitely, because women's movements. They take different shapes and forms, and as we talked about, don't may not necessarily uh, explicitly, you know, operate within a feminist framework, uh, right. so to speak. But I would like to think that as long as um, anyone stands in solidarity with women um, and the girl child, first and foremost, recognizes their fundamental human dignity, that um, therein lies. Uh, you know, the basic ethos for um, a women's movement or a feminist movement. When we look at the, you know, present times, particularly in the past three to four decades, what have been some of the most significant accomplishments by feminists in Southeast Asia? Okay, this is a huge question. Right. <laughs> uh, because it's looking at, you know, feminists in Southeast Asia. Right. Well, the feminists in Southeast Asia and in every part of the world actually have uh, benefited really from four world conferences on women that have been organized by the United Nations. Right. So that has played a very integral role. And with the last and the fourth world conference on women that happened you know, way back in 1995, we have the Beijing Platform for Action that outlines uh, 12 areas of concern. So this includes... Uh, women in decision-making and political leadership, women in the economy, women in media, and the girl child, and others. And of course, all countries in ASEAN have already acceded or ratified the Women's Treaty, which is CEDAW, a convention on the elimination of all forms of discrimination against women. Hmm. So um, the accomplishments by feminists in Southeast Asia, you know, using these conventions and blueprints for women's rights. Um, it's done a lot in terms of advancing uh, gender equality and also gender equity. And using Malaysia as a case right. study itself, I guess our most significant accomplishments has to be legal reforms. So there was the amendment to the constitution on the principle of non-discrimination on the basis of one's gender. And then back in 1994, the Domestic Violence Act. And just last year, coming out of COVID, the Anti-Sexual Harassment Act. So right. this is a shout out to local women's organizations that I you know, used to be a part of uh, more actively in my younger days. Um, these are significant victories, not only in and of itself, but because they are the result of you know, women activists slugging it out for 10 years, even 20 years in the case of the anti-sexual harassment bill. So they've uh, fought the good fight. And on the table, of course, we look forward to the constitutional amendment to allow right. overseas-born children or Malaysian mothers married to foreigners to also obtain automatic Malaysian citizenship. Uh, so, uh, so much of you know the feminist movement is about insisting on 
uh, women's equal right, equal right to men. You know? mm-hmm. So law reform in this regard uh, reflects the commitment of the government and also key stakeholders in upholding um, principles of gender equality. So it's not just you know women's problem in that sense, but it should be everyone's uh, concern. When you zoom in on Southeast Asia, would you say that the past three to four decades is the most significant? And I'm asking this just to, again, contextualize our history a little bit more. Because when we, when we talk about, let's say, um, gender equality movements for women's right to vote, for example, um, that doesn't seem to be something that we necessarily discuss in Malaysia because by the time we already had, um, uh, let's say, an electoral system, um, there, that wasn't necessarily an issue, right? Women yes. already had the right to yes. vote in Malaysia. So would you say that a lot of our accomplishments in this region, uh, major milestones, um, came from the over the past three to four decades? How do you contextualize that? So keeping in mind the you know four world conferences that really mobilized the women's movement, not just in Asia, but also globally, right. I would agree with you that um, the biggest accomplishments by feminists in Southeast Asia, and of course, this is quite a generalized statement to make, mm-hmm. um, has been witnessed and has been seen in the past four decades. So past four decades would be in the 1980s onwards. Um, that that certainly would be true. So much of hard work has also gone into you know advancing women's human rights across uh, many fields and uh, many sectors and also at different levels. So there is um, a gender mainstreaming that has uh, come about, mm-hmm. and this is um, at the level of uh, governments who are state parties to conventions like CEDAW. So that sort of top-down approach where you gender mainstream is important and that basically has complemented um, a sort of bottom-up approach by civil society and chiefly the women's uh, non-governmental organizations. So women's participation in politics, for instance, you know, having that quota and combating violence against women or gender-based violence as we have broadened the term uh, these days mm-hmm. is... Um, is basically the the uh, main main ethos of uh, any women's group. Uh, the genesis of most uh, women's groups actually has been uh, fighting you know, women, violence against women because that, like poverty, I think is uh, something that we will always be needing to work against. On the show with me today is Sharon A. Bong, Professor of Gender Studies at the School of Arts and Social Sciences at Monash University, Malaysia. After the break, we continue our discussion on feminism in Southeast Asia. This is Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dr. Johan and on the show with me today is Sharon Bong, a professor of gender studies at the School of Arts and Social Sciences at Monash University, Malaysia. And in conjunction with International Women's Day, we are talking about the feminist movement in Southeast Asia. So Sharon, would you say that we are uh, heading in the right direction, whether in Malaysia or other countries um, in the region, as far as gender equality is concerned? 
generally I would think so. Uh, this is, you know, a Monday, the start of a new week, so one tends to be a bit more optimistic. Uh, but but honestly, yeah, I'd like to think so because there are so many, you know, fruits of um, success, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But as I mentioned, uh, behind every, you know, legal reform, success, there's still a long way to go because... Um, there is, you know, a lot of gender sensitization that is needed. Uh, even among lawmakers, not everyone uh, necessarily buys into a feminist agenda right. or, you know, recognizes that women really do and should have, uh, you know, basic rights, uh, fundamental rights. So, but I would say generally we are headed in the right direction and this in large part is due to the uh, global solidarity, um, cross-border solidarity among you know feminists working locally. Yeah, because it's very easy to feel isolated and cut off, and to feel like you're pretty much alone in this struggle. And also, you know, the burnout is very real. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it helps also to not have to um, uh, you know make mistakes that others have already um, been there, done that. Right. So. Uh, learning from best practices, uh, not just regionally, but globally, is also very important. So when you put all of these factors together, yeah, I would say that a lot of inroads have been made. And also, because uh, governments, Asian governments who are state parties to CEDAW, they are held accountable. So every four to five years, they need to submit a report. It's like a report card um, stating what are the gains made in terms of advancing women's rights or gender justice and what are, you know, barriers or impediments that they need to work around. Mm. So there is that. Yeah. Um, Sharon, what's also particularly interesting about the past four decades is that the Cold War ended and most of the world became part of the global capitalist system. Um, It's also the era of globalization at a massive, massive and rapid rate. I'm wondering how globalization impacted um, the feminist movement in this region, either positively or negatively. It's another good question. I think maybe it's not quite an either-or response, maybe mm. both ends. So right. globalization in the form of, let's say, the production, the management and control of information, uh, you know, in this era, uh, information is power. Uh, globalization in that regard has worked for feminist uh, networks in the region. So examples include uh, Take Back the Tech. So Take Back the Tech is a feminist organization that aims to reclaim the internet and social media platforms as a safe space for women and by extension other marginalized uh, communities. Right. Then you also have Girls Not Brides who advocate against early or child marriage. And of course, we know that that is a very sensitive uh, issue in the context of um, Malaysia. Right. And but globalization and by extension, you know, this mad rush, mad drive towards progress, uh, which has accelerated ecological damage, mm-hmm. refugee crisis, trafficking in persons. So these issues, in turn, indirectly caused by, um, driven by globalization, has added on to um, the struggles of feminists in the region. So. In some ways, it has worked, and in some ways, it's created, you know, more problems. Right. 
what would you say is the leading country in Southeast Asia in terms of feminism and, and gender equality? Um, which country do you think people in this region should be looking to um, to learn from? Wow, that is so loaded a question and I could get into trouble with, uh, you know, my feminist friends uh, right. in the region. I guess for me, uh, that would be feminists from the Philippines. Mm. Let me just quickly put a disclaimer first. Yeah. Uh, that's primarily because, you know, I've worked with feminist theories and you know of my work in terms of uh, feminism and religion. Mm-hmm. So in terms of feminist theologies, uh, what I've drawn a lot of inspiration from are you know, theologians from the Philippines. So that's why the Filipino feminism um, stand out for me. Uh, they have been and they continue to be at the forefront of uh, many, many grassroots movements, not just feminist grassroots movements that have agitated for change. So, you know, from ousting dictators to standing in solidarity with comfort women and others surviving gender-based discrimination and violence to legal reforms. So they also had their own, you know, share of decades-long um, legal reform advocacy, and um, in 2012, finally, this particular piece of legislation, the Responsible Parenthood and Reproductive Health Act, uh, came out. They also very strong ecological care. Um, I think it takes a particular kind of courage and vision to speak up against uh, church-sponsored, you know, gender-based discrimination and violence. So that's why I am deeply inspired in my own work by Asian feminists or theologians from the Philippines. And what would you say are some of the major challenges, Sharon, that feminist movement in Southeast Asia today continue to face? And and how are um, you and your contemporaries uh, addressing these challenges? Oh, there's so many, uh, so many challenges. <laughs> the list is very long. Right. Uh, far longer than the list of, you know, victories. So right. I think... Apathy, resistance from stakeholders uh, come top of mind. And legal reforms and also gender sensitization initiatives like housework is never done. So they require, you know, decades of advocacy work. And I think the burnout, which I mentioned earlier among feminist activists, is an occupational hazard. It's a very real thing. Um, And that is why domestic and uh, cross-border solidarity among like-minded persons are really meaningful, impactful, and helps you to keep going. And what I've already mentioned also, learning from best practices. And this is uh, particularly helpful on the issue of uh, sexual and reproductive health and rights, which is very, very sensitive in countries like Malaysia and Indonesia. Mm -hmm. Uh, It enables individuals and individuals uh, within organizations and organizations to, you know, deploy limited resources more efficiently and also more meaningfully in considering what works in their context because what works in one context may not work in another. So we have a very healthy conversation between, you know, local practices that are informing global or regional visions and also regional practices that are informing local visions. So that's another reason why I remain uh, hopeful Right. and optimistic that we are definitely going in the general uh, right direction. 
And this next question is something that I'm particularly interested in picking your brain on, right, Sharon? Because I think you 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 focus, like you talk about, on on the intersection between theology and and gender equality and everything in between. I'm wondering what role have local cultural and religious traditions um, played in shaping feminist movements in in Southeast Asia. And how have y'all navigated these cultural contexts? Um, I guess you can perhaps shed even more personal light when it comes to Malaysia, but as well as broadly speaking around the region, how do people navigate the unique um, cultural context that we have here? Because there are so many religions, so many different um, viewpoints on feminism. And on top of that, there is that, that sort of resistance that you talked about very early on because of our colonial history. There is that resistance by some people to just brush it off and say, you know, this is just brainwashing by, by the West. Um, how, how do you all navigate these challenges? A very, very good question. And yes, as you have mentioned, this is the main intersection of uh, much of my research mm-hmm. uh, for the past 20 years. And that is uh, looking at women's rights and religions or sexuality rights and religions. So I would say that a lot, you know, um, it plays a big, big role. And especially as you've pointed out in the context of Southeast Asia, where cultures and religious traditions are rich And because of that, they have informed, they have influenced the decisions that we make in our lives, you know, whether these are small or bigger decisions. And particularly with regard to what is deeply intimate, you know, sexual and reproductive health and rights. So, for instance, the right to not marry, the right to say no to marital rape, the right to use contraceptives. Um, So we have here a collision, you know, a contestation between two often contrasting ideologies. So one would be local and cultural religious traditions, and then the other one, which is quite secularized, uh, human rights, or women's human rights and sexuality rights. So you're absolutely spot on in terms of identifying that to a large extent, you know, local cultures and religions may seem like a barrier, right, to realizing or advancing women's human rights. And one solution, one way out of what is usually an impasse or a deadlock would be to have the various stakeholders, so the women's uh, rights activists, you know, religious representatives, where possible, you know, sit at this metaphorical uh, round table you know, slug it out if they need to, but try and find a common ground, uh, a way forward, because um, usually an impasse or a deadlock tends to affect those who are really more, uh, those are really vulnerable and who are going to be made even more vulnerable because of these conflicting viewpoints. So it's anyone from girls forced into early marriage or people who are living with a HIV uh, who are told that um, the use of a condom is, you know, against uh, religious teachings right. or LGBT-identifying persons, or even people who feel that, you know, um, identifying as a feminist uh, runs counter to being Christian, for instance. Right. Yeah. I'm wondering, Sharon, because like you rightfully pointed out as well, right, when when we think about the intersectionality between religion and, and feminism or gender equality, uh, the assumption is there is a conflict there. And, you know, how do you navigate that conflict? But I'm wondering, um, 
in your years of research in this area, has religion in this region benefited um, the feminist and gender equality movement? Has there been moments where you drew from religion um, in, in a positive um, direction in which the uh, re- whatever religion it may be um, actually um, you know, empowered the, the feminist or gender equality movement? Mm. Or is it mostly just you know, conflict? No, 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 definitely not. And thank mm-hmm. you for this uh, part B of uh, the, <laughs> the same question. I forgot the most important point. No, of course, I would not be working um, on this particular intersection for you know the past two decades, mm-hmm. slightly more, if it were not for the fact that um, there is a lot of um, common ground or meeting points uh, between rights and religions, for right. sure. And the Sisters in Islam, in the context of Malaysia, for instance, mm-hmm. they are top of mind because as with other feminist um, theologians, uh, what we have done is to you know, look to the holy text as a source and a resource for women's human dignity. So if we think in terms of how dignity, you know, human dignity is a fundamental basis of a human rights, then in that regard, there is very little contestation. Religions do not uh, pose in that regard a barrier to, you know, women's human rights. Right. Again, I'm going back to this idea of globalization, but specifically more towards the era of social media. How do you process this um, interesting sort of period, and I say interesting, not necessarily, not in a good way at all, this period <laughs> where you see many people in this region, um, including Malaysians and, and whatnot, where they look up to people like Andrew Tate, for example, where there seems to be this ri- rise over the past 10 years, especially um, this rise of this, this right-wing um, sort of perspective on feminism, this rise of misogyny. And we are seeing people like the like Andrew Tate, who, you know, we, can, we cannot just look at them and say, oh, these are just um, people talking rubbish in the fringes because these are, you know, people with millions and millions and millions of followers across the, of, across the globe. How do you contextualize that, um, you know, seeing as how much progress we have made over the past four decades, but yet, you know, people like Andrew Tate still continue to be this very prominent figure in, in pop cultural zeitgeist? Uh, that's a good question. And I guess uh, one of the uh, main barriers to, you know, feminist movements anywhere, and especially in the U.S., would be uh, right-wing, right-wing uh, politics and right. um, individuals and ideologies. Yeah, for sure. It is always um, troubling when you have, you know, that level of uh, misogyny, as you put it, mm-hmm. directed against women. And usually, it's a tripartite thing for someone who is so hostile um, against women. Usually, you know, these uh, persons or cohorts would also be hostile um, and would also level hate, for instance, against uh, sexual and gender minorities, as well as um, also be racist. So it's it's all bundled up. And that's why the power of feminisms, uh, earlier in this interview, we talked about the strength of uh, intersectionality, where we recognize that 
yes, the woman question, the gender question is important. It's what fueled the um, feminist movement, the women's movement locally and globally. But intersectionality helps us to understand that, especially in an Asian context, uh, you know, our gender and identity is just one identity marker that there are others such as class and then our race, our religious affiliation in the context of Malaysia, especially where, you know, race is so heavily politicized. So we recognize that um, intersectionality plays a part. And so to contest right wing um, politics and ideologies like this or just, you know, pure unfiltered misogyny that tends to be so rampant and social media has also been a tool that is used to weaponize um, against uh, the women's movement. So I, I take heart in the diversity of uh, voices, uh, the reactions, even if it's you know like or dislike, um, but the feminist voice it may seem like, you know, it is almost drowned out, right. but I'm not quite happy to say. And <laughs> there are, you know, many uh, plural and diverse voices um, speaking up and they may not necessarily need to do so from, you know, a feminist perspective because uh, right wing politics uh, is actually, you know, very, very talkful, uh, toxic, sorry, and uh, harmful. So there are many others who are speaking up, which includes uh, feminists. Fantastic. Now, before we wrap this conversation up, uh, would you have a final message for us this International Women's Day? Oh, the big question. <laughs> mm, the theme for this year's IWD uh, is a clever play on digital, right? digital, uh, innovation and technology for gender equality. And some networks that I've mentioned, Take Back the Tech, um, Girls Not Brides, and so many others have already long, you know, harnessed the internet, right? And social mm -hmm. media platform because it's a powerful tool for transformation, you know, for um, realizing social and gender justice. But of course, as you have pointed out, there are also others that have used it maliciously to uh, weaponize it against women's human rights. So I guess... The first message would be, uh, because of the uh, theme, uh, let us use the internet and social media platforms uh, mindfully. And for those of us who, you know, uh, have that political view to continue doing so, of course, being in Japan for study leave, I was privileged to witness Hina Matsuri. It's mm -hmm. a Doll's Day or Girl's Day just a few days ago, March the 3rd. And that's a festival that celebrates the girl child. So I guess this is my main message uh, to anyone who believes in the fundamental dignity of the girl, child, every human and non-human, hmm. and the way we relate not only to each other, but also the environment. Uh, let us continue in our own way uh, to walk the talk, uh, whether it be in the home, you know, at our workplace, on the streets. And I also want to say as a final note that I am a feminist because of my mother. And also wish to give tribute to her and by extension to all mothers. And on that note, Sharon, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome. Thank you, Dashran. 
That was Sharon A. Bong, a professor of gender studies at the School of Arts and Social Sciences at Monash University, Malaysia. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or pretty much wherever we get your podcasts from. You just have to look up Today I Learned Podcasts. I'm Darshan Johan, and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.